Good morning. Gonna let you know a secret about me. I like to eat. No big secret, right? <laughs> let me put this so you can't see me so well. Oh. Just came from we just came from Hamilton, Ontario on a little bit of vacation. Got to introduce my daughter to her extended family, to her grandma and grandpa, and a bunch of, uh, to her uncle, and uh, Sam's half-sister, a whole bunch of people. And one of the main things that we did while we were there is we ate with all of our families. Um, it was a lot of fun. And on one particular occasion, I got to go to my brother-in-law, he works at a particular restaurant. And at this restaurant, they say that they're the ones that invented the chicken wing. It's a franchise. I thought chickens always had wings, but apparently they invented them. Uh, they made it delicious for people to eat. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but have you ever gone to a restaurant, opened up the menu, and saw like four or five options of things that you really wanted to try? I love trying new foods. I love, I love all different kinds of foods, ethnic foods. Uh, you name it, I'll try it. I love it. And I'll give anything a shot once. And I was at this restaurant, they had this, this uh, fish and chips that were actually battered with hickory sticks. And I thought, that's amazing. That's a great idea. You know, my heart just will burst thinking about it, but I really wanted to try it. And then they had a couple other dishes that I really wanted to try too. And then I started panicking a little bit because, you know, the waitress, she's over and she's standing there expectantly, you know, like taking down the orders and kind of putting the pressure on you. It's like, okay, I get it. You're with your family. Very nice. Now order. You know, and so she's sitting there writing stuff down and I kind of panicked a little bit. And so I ordered the chicken wings. I didn't really want them, but I figured, okay, well, that's a safe bet because, you know, I invented the chicken wings. So maybe this is some kind of wonderful, amazing dish. Let me tell you, when it came, has this ever happened to you too? You immediately have meal envy. You look at everybody else's meal and you're like, want that, want that, want that, want that, don't want this. <laughs> My meal was terrible. It was, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, the food was bad or anything. It just was, it was a chicken wing. It was plain. It was just, blah. It was really, really sad. I forgot that sometimes, you know, other things are good. And sometimes you don't need to just go straight to the chicken. One time I was at uh, Smitty's, and I love a meat lover's skillet. I absolutely adore those things. Again, calories, I know I'm fat. But anyway, uh, I know that I like certain things at Smitty's, and one time I went ahead and I ordered a beef dip sandwich. And, you know, if anybody like owns a Smitty's or works at a Smitty's, you know, I apologize, but that is the most terrible dish they've ever created. I got it, and it was like a white bun without, it didn't, they didn't toast it or anything, it was just a bun. Uh, the beef was completely bland, and then the, the au jus sauce was just, it literally was a bowl of warm water. It was brown, but it had no flavor at all. It was probably the worst meal I've ever had to suffer through in my life. And I got it because it was safe, because I kind of had that whole, oh, there's too many things to order, and so I, I forgot the goodness of other things, and I went for something that I felt was going to be okay, and it was not okay. Absolutely not okay. And we suffer this problem all the time, and it, it takes its, its, it rears its face in different forms, in different situations. Sometimes we forget uh, the goodness in our lives in really, really small things like meals. Sometimes we forget goodness in bigger things. If you're faced with a real situation, a real challenge, like say there's a death in the family, maybe there's a problem at work and you're about to lose your job, maybe you have lost your job. Maybe there's a relationship that's breaking down. 
In these situations, it's very easy to forget the goodness of God. We look around and we see the terribleness that's around us. We see the, the problems, we see the storm, we see the waves, we see all that stuff. And we forget the goodness of God. We like to, we like to blame the powerful for not acting in those situations. You see this all the time on the news. Uh, we blame the government for not having strict enough laws when something goes wrong. Uh, the U.S. actually takes an awful lot of flack for not getting involved in every single conflict that erupts across the globe because they have a powerful army, so surely they should be the ones to sail in and save everybody, right? We, we put this blame on the powerful, and sometimes it's appropriate, sometimes that's right. And I think that gets established through, through Christian belief, actually. I think it comes from, you know, the golden rule, treat others the way that you want to be treated. You know, we, people have power, and God has gifted them with that power to help other people, and that's a good thing. But, but when it doesn't happen the way that we think it should, we feel somehow mistreated, don't we? I mean, think about this. Uh, pick any problem that is in your life. If it, it, if it doesn't get immediately solved the way that you think it should, our first reaction almost always is, God, why didn't you do that? You could have. You had the power. But you're not doing it. You're not helping me. You're not fixing it. You're not changing it. And we believe that it's our fundamental right to have that help and to be changed in some way uh, that, that we deem appropriate. Well, this is the case of the Israelites, way, way back in the days of Jesus. You see, they had been suffering for a long time, a couple hundred years, in fact. They had been under Roman rule before that. They had been under the rule of several other oppressive governments. They had suffered. Their homeland had been wiped clean a couple of times. Their temple had been destroyed a couple of times. They had been cut off from God many, many times. And after 400 years... God had been silent for that entire time. He hadn't sent them a prophet like He did back in the Old Testament days. Where a guy from God would come in and then talk to an entire town and get them to change their ways and all that stuff. That didn't happen. God hadn't displayed His power in any way in hundreds of years. And people were starting to forget the goodness of God. Their leaders were kind of turning against them and joining in with the bad guys that surrounded them. They had become politicians rather than spiritual leaders. They had lost hope. They had lost faith. And Jesus comes onto the scene, and He comes into a little town called Nain. And people had forgotten the goodness of God, and this is where we are. This is the, the spiritual fervor of the moment. And in this town, there's something special that's going on. Let's take a look here. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 12. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. Alright, so picture this, you're coming up to a small town, and a huge crowd of people is coming out, and right in the midst of that crowd, there's a dead person being carried on board. He's being taken to a tomb or a grave or something like that. And you can just imagine the feeling that's surrounding this person. You can just imagine the grief of the mother as she's, she's looking at her dead son. And this is very, very fresh. The, the Jewish people, they would bury their dead immediately. So he probably died that day, if not that very morning. But there's something that's happening here that we need to be careful not to miss. This story is beginning in a very similar fashion 
to several stories that happen in the Old Testament. If you look back, there's a couple books called First and Second Kings. In each of those books, you have a prophet. In First Kings, you have a prophet named Elijah. He's a man of God. He was a very powerful prophet. In fact, I'd say he's one of the most important prophets in the Old Testament. And in the second book, you have a man named Elisha. He was the protege of Elijah. And both of these men were sent by God to a widow, specifically to help their family. Now we know from the, the title, uh, if you have your Bible, the chapter titles and all those things, it tells us that Jesus raised a widow's son. So we know what's going to happen in this story. And this is exactly what happens in the Old Testament stories. These men are sent by God and from God to go into these families' lives and to heal and resurrect their sons. These widows are cared about by God, and He resurrects their family. Now, widows and orphans in the Old Testament are considered to be the most helpless of all people. It's not like it is today. If someone loses their husband today, that's okay. She probably has a career, and she's probably able to take care of herself. She's not going to need an awful lot of social assistance. She has perhaps alimony payments and all those other things. There's, there's plenty of help available. In those days, however... A woman was completely dependent on her family for everything. She was not allowed to work. She was not allowed to, to trade and barter like the men were allowed to do. In fact, if you want to read more about how desperate those situations are, take a look at the book of Ruth. It's all about that. Um, but anyway, these widows, they were unable to help themselves. And so, it would fall on their eldest son to take care of them. Because the eldest son was allowed to go into town and to trade and and engage in commerce, and own land, and do all that type of stuff. But if your eldest son died, it would fall to the next son, and the next son, and the next son. If you had no sons, you were in an awful lot of trouble. It wasn't easy for a widow to remarry. It wasn't easy for widows in those days. So, the death of a son, when you're a widow, is the death of your family life. It's the death of your security. It's the death of your future. Not only is it the death of your family and that intense emotional connection and that intense love that you have, it's the death of everything. This woman was living in a time that was absolutely impossible. She had given up hope on life. She was giving up hope on the goodness of God. Take a look at what happens in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, His heart went out to her and He said, don't cry. Then he went up, and he touched the bear that they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And I would have loved to hear the story that he had to say. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Jesus has compassion on this hurting widow. He sees the pain, he sees the fear in the future, and the lack of hope. And his heart breaks. And he decides to do something about it. And he says the phrase, don't worry. Have you ever been in the middle of a really bad situation and someone comes up to you and says, don't worry? It's kind of a, a hollow hope, isn't it? It's, it's words that kind of have no meaning. It's like if you're like in the middle of tears and you're just pouring out tears. And you say, don't cry. <laughs> Well, of course I'm going to cry. I'm in the midst of this emotional experience. I can't help it. These are empty words unless someone has some power to do something about it. Then Jesus, he does something interesting. He walks up and he touches 
the coffin. And he talks to the dead body. I'm sure that would have seemed really cruel if the ending hadn't been the same, right? But he touches the dead body. And I think Jesus here wants to be seen that he is willing to help, even at his own expense. Take a look at what happens if you touch a dead body in Numbers chapter 19, verse 11. Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. This is a big deal. It wasn't just that if you walked up and touched, you know, like it says that he touched the bear or the coffin. Uh, in that chapter, in chapter 19 of Numbers, it says that if you even go into a room where there's a dead body, you become ceremonially unclean. And being unclean was a very, very big deal. Because that unclean person wasn't allowed to associate with other clean people until they had been purified, until they had been set right again. So according to Old Testament law, Jesus has become ceremonially unclean. And according to Old, Old Testament law, he has to do something very, very specific. Take a look at chapter 19, verses 12 and 13. They must purify themselves with the water. And I'll explain what that water is in just a second. On the third day and the seventh day, then they will be clean. But if they do not purify themselves on the third day and the seventh days, they will not be clean. Now this is no ordinary water. It's not like he just had to take a bath and wash his hands and that was it. This is water that was very, very specific. They would take a cow that had no, no blemishes on it, no moles or anything like that. And they would take this cow and they would sacrifice it and burn it all up. And someone would take the ashes and mix it with another kind of water. And this is water that had been treated with a particular herb and some other stuff. And they'd take this water and they'd have to like put it on themselves, bathe and wash in it on two separate days. Take a look here, verse 9. This water is to be kept by the Israelite community for use in the water of cleansing. Look what they say about this water. It is for purification from sin. Right at the bottom of that. This water was used for purification from sin. Being unclean wasn't just about, oh, he touched something bad, so now we all have to put on gloves, and that's the way it works. An unclean person was one that was touched by sin. Purification from sin is what's required. Jesus touches this body. He's unclean. And he doesn't go through all these practices. We don't have him going away and you know going to the priest and asking for this water and cleansing himself with this water. And this water that they had to use was known a couple of different ways. First, it was called the water of separation. Or it was called the water of cleanliness. It was also called the living water. Because if you were unclean, this was the only thing that could make you right once again. And if they failed to purify themselves using this, this water of, of hope, this, this cleansing water, this living water, in verse 13 it says, If they failed to purify themselves after touching a human corpse, they defile the Lord's tabernacle. Where tabernacle means God living with us. In the Old Testament times, before they had the temple, they had this tent, which was a meeting, and God would literally come into that tent. It was the tabernacle. It was where God engaged with His people. And if you defile this, they must be cut off from Israel. Because the water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on them. They are unclean, and their uncleanliness remains on them. To touch a dead body was to cut yourself off literally from God. And to become unclean. It was as if you yourself were dead. And Jesus comes in the middle of that walks up and touches that dead body and changes the game a little bit. 
See, he doesn't need to make himself clean because of what he does. He raises that body back to life. He brings that person back. He, he saves that family. And he resurrects this son. There is no law in the Old Testament about walking up and touching a living person. So he changes the rules. He takes this dead, unclean corpse and resurrects him and makes him clean, restores him. He not only goes to this mother and gives her her son back, he not only takes this opportunity to change the lives of a few little people, he also takes this opportunity to restore life, to restore purity. He comes as an example that he has power over death. He has power over sin. Because remember, to be unclean is to suffer from sin. Jesus is proving that he has authority over the entire Old Testament. That he has authority over all the rules, over all the regulations. That he himself is the living water that purifies and cleanses and restores life. Jesus has power and authority that no ritual can ever have. And the most fantastic thing about all of this is that Jesus does it completely out of compassion. He walks into a situation and sees a hurting person. She doesn't owe him anything. She has done nothing to make Jesus come over there and do it. Instead, he just sees a problem and he walks in and says, I can help. And he fixes it. Where is your hurt? Is your marriage dying? Are you fearful of what's happening in school? Are you afraid of your grades and your marks? Are you lonely and alone? Is someone you know sick? Are you yourself sick? Where's your hurt? When we're in the middle of the hurts, do you forget that Jesus looks at these situations with compassion? Do we forget that Jesus can look at us and actually know what we're going through and say, I actually do want to help? Jesus has the power to resurrect life in all of those situations. More than that, He has the power to take what is broken and dead and unclean and turn it into beautiful gifts of life. He can take all of those things and change them around and make them better. Not just make them better, make them live, make them fruitful, make them amazing. We know that Jesus has this power. And you know, even if we pray with all of our strength and nothing changes, we have evidence. We have evidence that Jesus has that power. We know that He has the power over life. We know that He has the power over, over death and sin. We know that Jesus has the power to change things. And even if what we conceive of being a help from God isn't what happens, we can pin our hope in knowing that He has the power to do what He will do. This is a hope. This word hope, we, we mistake all the time. Sometimes we think of it kind of like blowing out the candles on a birthday cake. Oh, I hope that I get a pony. You know? Sometimes we think of it as like wishing upon a star. And it's not like that. This is a hope that is centered in the evidence of the power of Christ. This is a very real hope. And this power that He demonstrates is not wasted on the crowd. Take a look at what happens in verse 16. They were all filled with awe, and they praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. Now remember, it's been hundreds of years 
since a prophet from God has come. They're excited to see God move and do something. But they go beyond that. They say, God Himself, God has come to help His people. And this news about Jesus has spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. As a people, we want to hope. We want to believe. And when we go through stretches where it's hard to see where that hope is going to come from, when it's hard to have hope in, in Jesus and in the goodness of God, we put our hopes in other things. And it, it goes from silly to, to very, very serious. I lived in Calgary in the year 2004. And that was a strange year for the, the city of Calgary. You see, the Calgary Flames, for the first time since 89, had made it to the Stanley Cup Finals. Now, those of you here who are Leaf fans, I think you have a hope. Um, it may not be the best of hopes, but you have a hope, right? <laughs> At least they're there. Uh, in 2004, the Flames had just come through a, a really terrible period of time where they were one of the worst teams in the league, and beyond all belief, they pulled all kinds of magic tricks out of their hats and managed to beat teams that they had no business of beating. And I can tell you that the city was electric. It was crazy in those days. If you wore red, you were part of the team. Like, you could walk around the city and just wearing red, and people would high-five you, they would shake your hand, uh, you'd talk about the game last night or the game that's coming next week. Uh, everybody knew every single player, even us non-sports guys, we got swept away in it. Uh, it was amazing. People were throwing just impromptu barbecues, and anybody could show up. Uh, our, we were having a, a pancake breakfast and just inviting anyone from the city to come just to celebrate the flames. Like, it was incredible. Um, if you wore a flame symbol, that was even better. Like people would almost like hoist you on a chair and carry you around. You know, look at our flames. In those days, it was my college days, so I would do weird things. Um, I went out to buy like a jersey, and uh, there was none to be found. Of course, they had all been bought up months ago. And all I could find in Zellers was this little baby bib that had the Calgary Flames symbol on it. So I wore that around for a little bit until it got a little weird. Uh, and I cut out the, the symbol and I like sewed it onto a t-shirt. And it was like this really cool shirt. And people were like really excited that I was wearing this flame shirt. It was amazing. And during our pancake breakfast there, I'm wearing my flame shirt, you know, we're high-fiving people. We're talking on the radio and saying, hey, anybody come on down? We're celebrating. Uh, I looked across the street, and I think someone had posted this sign there, because it was across the street from my Bible college. And they had posted a sign that said, Aginla is our Messiah. I was like, whoa, okay. That's taking it just a little too far. But that's how excited people were. And the, the flames were pulling trick out of trick and a trick out of their bags. And they were doing incredible things. I don't know if you're familiar with what happened. They took it to Game 7 in Tampa went into overtime, and they lost. Now, I can tell you something. It was like the air was sucked out of the city. People were honking at each other, but it wasn't in praise anymore. It was out of anger. Uh, they would wave to each other, just not with all their fingers. Uh, you know, people started looking for someone to blame, right? It, it's amazing how quickly hope turned to hatred. And all of a sudden, like Aginla, when, when they came home, Aginla got off the plane, and I remember him having this, this uh, interview where he said, yeah, you know, don't worry about it, uh, it's sad that we lost, but we're hungry for victory, and this only makes us more hungry. 
And you can see him saying this without any real, you know, oomph. He had no conviction. He knew that they had lost. He knew that they had missed their chance. And then the whole city started demanding more magic tricks from the flames. More magic tricks. They wanted the goalie to be as amazing as he was during that playoff run. They wanted Aguila to be as amazing as he was during that entire playoff run. And their record stands for themselves. They weren't able to produce any more magic tricks. And I kind of want to write a sign now and take it back to the Bible College and post it in that guy's window. It says, where's your Messiah now? <laughs> He's in Pittsburgh. <laughs> but Crowds really like magic. When the illusion is over, the excitement fades. When the flames lost, the excitement faded very, very quickly. You know, when Jesus displayed his power, he saved it for crowds that weren't eager for magic tricks. And when a crowd formed around him that really wanted to see a magic trick, they really wanted to see him, you know, raise somebody from the dead, or they really wanted to see him heal somebody or whatever, they weren't there because they wanted good things to happen for, for people. They weren't there because they wanted their lives to be changed. They were there because they wanted to see something cool. And Jesus had huge problems with those crowds. Some of those crowds wanted to crown him king. They wanted to give him authority that they had no authority to give themselves. Some crowds, like the crowd that was around King Herod, just wanted to see him do magic tricks. They brought him before and said, Come on, do something, do something amazing. And Jesus wouldn't do it. He reserved his power for when he could change a life. And when a crowd would respond with the glory of God in mind. Jesus reserves his power for the right crowds. This crowd was ready, ready for him. This crowd was hurt. This family needed help. And Jesus displayed his power for a hurting family. They didn't think it was a cool magic trick. Their lives were changed. The result was they walked off and they celebrated God. They said these words, God has come to help his people. That's what they got out of it. So I have to ask, when we're sitting here in our hurts, and we go to God in prayer, and we ask God to come and to do something amazing, to change the hurt somehow, what's our motivation? Do we go to God and ask Him because we want a magic trick? So that everything would be the same as it was before, so that you know all of our problems would be snapped away? <coughs> Do we want a magic trick, or do we want God to come in and to change the situation? There is a difference. The difference is how we walk away. The crowd walked away and they were celebrating God. They were saying, God has come to help His people. They came giving glory and power to God. They came away saying that Jesus is more than a powerful prophet. They were saying that He is the Messiah. He is the one from God who is God, who has come to save His people. He's the one promised in Scripture. That's why we have such a strong tie to the Old Testament in the story. It's showing the completion of the story. The people go away saying, God has come to help His people. You know, in the next few weeks and months, you're going to be faced with all kinds of problems. I can guarantee it. There's going to be sickness. There's going to be tragedy. There's going to be heartbreak. There's going to be good things too. Don't worry about that. 
But in the middle of those hurts, do you believe in the goodness of God? Are you able to look and to say, God has come to help His people? And when you go away from those situations, are you able to point to Jesus and say, God has come to help His people? Is the glory of God reflected in your life? Do you believe in the goodness of God? Because God has come to help His people. He has. He absolutely has. Would you pray with me? Lord God, it's so easy to be distracted. Now we can have terrible things happen in our lives, like having an only son die. But Lord, we're human. We can get wrapped up in it. We can, we can get buried in it. We can, we can lose sight of you. And we can lose sight of everything and just allow our hurt to take over all aspects of our lives. And God, we're just asking for help. We're asking for the ability to look above that and look to you and to remember your goodness and to remember your promises. And Father, we want to glorify you with our lives. We want to walk away being able to say that God has come, that you have come to help your people. We want you to be glorified through the way that we act, through the way that we, we go through hurts and pains. And Father, we're just asking that you help us to believe. Lord, you display your power in front of those who are hurt. You display your power for those who will use that power for your glory. And so God, we're just asking that you will use that power in our lives. Lord, I don't know where everybody is. I don't know what everyone's hurts are. But God, I just ask that they come before you with those hurts and be willing to accept what change you bring them. And God, may you be glorified through this. May your power be known through this. And may people walk away saying that you have come to help your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.